When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You are listening to Parliament Matters, a Hansard Society production supported by the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust. Learn more at hansardsociety.org.uk slash pm. Hello and welcome to Parliament Matters, the podcast from the Hansard Society about the institution at the heart of our democracy, Parliament itself. I'm Ruth Fox. And I'm Mark Darcy. Coming up, the post office horizon scandal is the largest miscarriage of justice in British history. Much of the recent debate has focused on government oversight of the post office and the legal proceedings at the time. But how did members of Parliament help uncover the scandal? To explain this, we're joined by James Arbuthnot, Lord Arbuthnot, the former MP for North East Hampshire, immortalised in ITV's drama Mr Bates vs the Post Office. He championed constituents' concerns about the Horizon system and led a parliamentary campaign to investigate malpractice in the Post Office. We also look at Parliament's role in tackling other long-term scandals, think Windrush, think Hillsborough, contaminated blood. Why does it take so long to resolve them? Plus, there's plenty of other action in Parliament this week, so we'll start with a canter through some of the developing events. Ruth, one of the things that didn't happen was the petroleum licensing bill was dropped amidst all sorts of action. The Conservative MP Chris Skidmore's resigned the party whip and has now indeed quit Parliament because he opposed encouraging more fossil fuel extraction. And now the bill's not even in front of MPs. Is it become too hot to handle for the government? Well, the bill essentially ran out of time on the first day back after the the Christmas recess. I mean, it's an interesting thing, that first day back, so much news, so many statements that ministers had to make to Parliament, so many questions that MPs had about the situation in the Middle East, the post office scandal, that uh, essentially ministers were looking at having about half an hour left at the end of the day to deal with the the offshore bill. So they've, they've, um, you know, shelved it. 
Uh, they're going to take it in, in about 10 days' time. Um, but, of course, it did mean that Chris Skidmore, who had resigned uh, the, the whip, he found himself resigning from Parliament that same day. So he didn't actually get to vote against the bill that he was so opposed to. But he now is out of Parliament and the government's now facing another by-election. Yes, he, he never will vote against it in Parliament now anyway. But what's interesting about this for me is that the comparatively modest tribe of Green Conservatives seem to be shaking themselves out of the Conservative coalition a bit. Sir Alok Sharma, the Conservative MP, former Cabinet Minister, who chaired the last COP conference, which attempted to find a, a global solution to some of the questions around global warming and climate change, was also pretty against this bill, and he may be one of the voices raised against it. But if you think back to the days when David Cameron travelled to the North Pole and hugged huskies as well as hoodies and was very concerned about climate change and had a windmill in his garden generating a little bit of power and all the rest of it, that strain of conservatism seems to be rather withering, perhaps in the heat of climate change now, especially since the Axbridge by-election, when what was seen as a rebellion against green measures like the ultra-low emission zone from the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, was turned into an election-losing issue and weaponised against Labour. Um, That's now got the Conservatives going into an almost anti-green tack, and that's perhaps something that some of them won't put up with for much longer. Yeah, I mean, I think the situation, as you say, with, with ULEZ and that the by-election was a, a lesson to some Conservative MPs, the, the cost of living, energy crisis, the cost of, of energy bills, it sort of pushed this whole agenda about the speed and, and price of decarbonisation for net zero right to the top of their their agenda. And on this bill, the pragmatists say, look, the offshore petroleum licensing bill is is, is about providing annual licensing for oil and gas drilling. The regulatory body can do that anyway if it wants, mm. so that this, this bill is actually not that important. It was, it's a very slight measure. It gives the government a duty to do something it already has the power to do. So it, it's, it's yeah. a bill as a wedge issue rather yeah. than as actual sort of useful legislation. And, and, and that's one of the arguments that people have been making against it, that this is actually more about trying to, to make a case against Labour and put them on the spot rather than actually dealing with any substantive policy question. On the other hand, Chris Skidmore and Alec Sharma have made the argument that it's a bad signal in terms of our role in terms of international leadership, that at the COP, the fact that we are one of the first of the G20 nations to, to halve our carbon emissions... We're seen as a global leader. We've, we've positioned ourselves internationally. Successive governments have positioned us internationally as a global leader on this question. And that we're now seen to sort of be rolling back and that that's a bad signal, in Alok Sharma's words, to send to, to international partners. He said he won't vote for the bill. As ever, the question is, will he vote against it or yeah. will he just abstain, not be present for the vote? Well, we'll see. And, and again, I'm, I'm quite interested to look at how many Conservative MPs might not toe the line on this one. Just how big a, a section of the parties mm. actually so engaged in these issues that they might be prepared to defy the whip in the immediate run-up to a general election. Well, watch that space. And the other point to say about this, though, is that when the government set its decarbonisation targets and made them more stringent, this was all done by statutory instrument. This oh, was yes. all done with a very minimal <laughs> debate for an incredibly far-reaching <clears throat> policy issue. And this is one of the dangers 
of trying to sort of flim-flam things through with the minimum possible engagement in Parliament, because it comes back to bite you when people can complain there hasn't been proper discussion of a very, very far-reaching policy decision. It's all been sort of slipped through in, in a relatively small debate in the blink of an eye. Yeah, the net zero target, the statutory instrument, that it was Chris Skidmore that signed it, of course, and this is why he feels so strongly about it, it got a 90-minute debate in the House of Commons. What did it do? It committed the country to billions and billions of pounds of expenditure. Now, there's a principal question about whether a statutory instrument and a debate of 90 minutes that attaches to a statutory instrument should be something that can be used to permit expenditure on that scale. Is that hmm. beyond what a statutory instrument's purpose is for? The counter-argument to that, and the government's argument, would be, well, the Act permitted it. The drafting of the power in the Act gave the power to ministers, and in effect what you'd got was a sort of an uprating of the target that had been agreed through, I think it was the Climate Change Committee, some climate body that the Act provided for. Um, That had all that consultation, that consideration had been dealt with, and therefore this was perfectly normal practice in relation to the, the powers that ministers had in the Act, the Climate Change Act, to do this. That's right too. Well, it's, it's certainly correct in terms of that's what the bill said they could do, so they could do it. But it's the besetting sin of yeah. our times in terms of lawmaking, which is that the, the, the actual core decisions that a bill enables are so often now pushed through this way with a minimal debate, 90 minutes on a statutory instrument or proceeding under a bill. And that's not how it should work, in my view. I just do think that when you have mega policy questions, and this is mega, mega policy question, it should be a little bit more than 90 minutes in the chamber, most of which will be taken up with front bench speakers. And Parliament doesn't really get a chance to sink its remaining teeth into the issue. No, well, you're speaking to my hobby horse. I mean, this is something that I've worked on for 10 years, making the case that the treatment of, and this is what we call delegated or secondary, or if you're a lawyer, you might call it subordinate legislation, powers in acts which grant powers to ministers to make law with minimal parliamentary scrutiny, if any, And the boundary between what used to be in primary legislation in the bill that becomes an Act of Parliament and what is now increasingly in secondary legislation in a statutory instrument has shifted. Yeah, in the good old days, statutory instruments were to make kind of operational tweaks to the working of a law. You bring a a speed limit down by 10 miles an hour or something like that through a statutory instrument. You don't do huge changes in policy that way or at least you didn't do now apparently you do yeah and and to be clear this is not a recent change this has been a a shifting trend by ministers putting ever broader powers into bills for the last 30 years at least Mm. and successive governments of different political stripes have done it the boundary has now shifted that nobody really knows where it lies it's very clear that there is a rising tide of concern in Parliament, and I think increasingly outside Parliament as more and more people become aware of this. Our Delegated Legislation Review, which has been looking at this now for 18 months or so, shortly be reporting this spring, will have substantive proposals about how this can be reformed, and we hope that the next government will well, take well, them on board. Well, that's the question, isn't it? Imagine if it's Labour in power after the next election, having doubtless condemned this sort of thing at every possible opportunity for the last umpteen years will Labour once in power think oh what lovely power we can get stuff really done this way and do exactly what it used to condemn or will it actually stick to it and see a case for reform and enact it even if it's inconvenient for ministers its ministers later on 
Yeah, and that is the big question. And it's the big question that confronts new governments every time. In opposition, they say they're against things, they get into government and it's suddenly very convenient and they lose the reforming zeal. The sweet spot for reform is basically the first year to 18 months at the absolute outside before... Power yeah. corrupts, if and you like. They, they tell you, oh, we, you know, we, we've got to move ahead quickly. We, we haven't got time to do this sort of thing. This will have to wait. And it waits and waits and it never gets done. They lose ministerial office, they leave, they go back into opposition or they go back onto the government backbench and all of a sudden they find their reforming yeah. zeal about the importance of parliamentary <laughs> scrutiny again. It's is it hard be, not to be cynical, isn't it? it yeah. it's, a, <laughs> it's the big question, I think, for the Labour Party in the next parliament, if they win, are they prepared to reform some of these problems seriously? I would make the argument that there's an incentive for them because some of these problems that the government of the last sort of 10 years has faced has arisen from what I would call these, these poor governance problems. The lack of engagement with Parliament creates these political peaks, these sort of political crises around, you know, where the temperature rises about a particular issue and you find it's a statutory instrument and the, the, the scrutiny process doesn't allow... For all the concerns to be aired properly, yeah, yeah. And, and and they become bigger issues than they might otherwise have been. But I think it's it's also just about good governance and about having people, more people, more MPs, being able to look at the detail of some of these laws, rather than assuming that as soon as you've put it through the Whitehall process, it's fine and it shouldn't be touched. Job done. Yeah. And off the back of that whole environmental issue, there's another distinct issue, which is, should Chris Skidmore really have resigned? And his Bristol Kingswood seat, as it exists now, is being completely divvied up by the Boundary Commission, and so won't exist at the next election. So the winner of the impending by-election there will be an MP for a few months, and then may just sort of disappear forever in the wash at the next general election, because the constituency they serve simply won't exist anymore, and they might get not get into one of the successor constituencies. Couldn't he have just gritted his teeth and stuck it out until Rishi Sunak blows the whistle and starts the next election? Well, that's certainly what a number of his Conservative colleagues thought he should have done, both at Westminster and in his constituency party. I mean, you can understand it. Chris Gidmore's argument was, look, this is a principled resignation. I cannot vote for this legislation. I object to it. I'm giving the whip up. And he says he's always been an opponent of... MPs who who give up the whip, move to another party or or, or give up their party role, not resigning. So from his perspective, he was maintaining that commitment that if an MP effectively shifts party position, they should resign and give their constituents an opportunity to choose another MP. So hence he's gone. Um, The alternative argument, which his Conservative colleagues would put, is, look, you know, you, you are putting the electorate in your constituency and you're putting the local council that's going to have to pay the costs of this by-election, which will not be insubstantial, putting them to an awful lot of trouble, potentially just months away before they have to go through to the polls again for a a general election. Well, you could see someone being elected in February and out of a job in May, potentially. So, you know, a bit of a Mayfly existence for the next MP for Bristol-Kingswood. But on the other hand, don't underestimate the electoral significance of this. Bristol-Kingswood was a Labour seat right up till 2010 when David Cameron didn't quite win the 2010 general election, but Labour lost an awful lot of seats. So it gives Labour a very symbolic chance to get 
get back into the territory that it lost then. So to that extent, it's just another unwelcome electoral test for the, for the government and uh, a chance for Labour to score some brownie points from the voters there. Leaving aside that other parties may feel that they have a bit of an in, I think the Greens are quite strong in Bristol and might fancy their chances on an election caused by an environmental issue. But the, the, the politics of that election are not to be ignored. But, yeah, as you say, you do wonder if, if Chris Skidmore was so against this bill, couldn't he have just sat as an independent for a couple of months, perhaps try to get on the bill committee or try to make speeches at report stage and try and influence its content rather than simply go away? Now, he's a man with plenty of other things that he might want to do. He's an accomplished Tudor historian. I understand he's got a contract to write at some point a full-dress biography of King Henry the Seventh. So he's got other things that he could quite easily do. He's a professor at Bath University. There's talk that he may be uh, doing work for various green organisations in his MP afterlife. So there are plenty of reasons why he may think that he should just get on with the rest of his life and stop being in politics now. But all the same, I can't imagine there's not a bit of a weary sigh in Bristol Mm. Kingswood. Mm. On the other hand, if you're the Labour candidate, so Labour's chosen Damien Egan, who is, um, he's actually currently the mayor of Lewisham, but was chosen for one of the Bristol seats that's going to emerge. Oh, yes, he's in one of the successor seats, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, he's going to emerge out of the uh, the boundary changes. So they've selected him, yeah. and one presumes the understanding that he that he then will be in part of, you know, whatever the new seat is yeah, well, um, quite after, easy after the boundary change. So on. they've obviously got their sights set on this and think that they've got a got a good chance. So watch this space. The uh, by-election probably will be sooner rather than later. I think I should probably just say, going back to the interviews we did with with Michael Crick earlier this uh, earlier this year, that although I said he was the mayor of Lewisham, he's actually a local candidate. He does actually come from the Bristol area, so he, he's stressing his local roots. As Michael was very keen to uh, as all good to candidates convey. must. Yes. Yeah. And talking of MPs scrutinising the work of government, the Select Committee corridor is entering a rather odd pre-election phase now. You, you get a feeling that the air is slowly deflating out of their normal work because MPs are in increasingly preferring to spend more time dealing with their constituents, shoring up their position back in their constituency, and less time sitting in committee rooms in Westminster, quizzing ministers or experts or whoever it is. And and that manifests itself in several ways. Uh, A couple of vacancies have arisen in important select committees that uh, don't seem to be being filled with. Yeah, I mean, this was something that the Conservative uh, Minister, Andrea Leadsom, was taking up on social media earlier this week. She was pointing out that the Labour Party have not yet filled one of their seats on the Treasury Select Committee that's been vacant for a few months now since uh, Keir Starmer did his front bench reshuffle. And that's normally a pretty plumb post as well. Yeah, absolutely. And she was making the point that, you know, this is sort of indicative, of course, of Labour not taking seriously value for public money and, and, and so on. So she was having a sort of political dig. But there's a broader point that some of these select committee places are taking quite a long time to fill. As you say, even plum posts on really important committees. Another one that's been vacant for a few months now is the Intelligence and Security Committee, which is not a parliamentary select committee as such. It's appointed by the government. It's the body that oversees the intelligence services, so MI5, MI6, GCHQ and so on. Incredibly important. They have to sign the Official Secrets Act, so, you know, only senior MPs get chosen for it. But there are vacancies on that committee that have not yet been filled. Now, whether the problem is with the opposition not selecting them, not nominating people, or whether it's taking a very long time for them to be security cleared, uh, well, we don't know. Well, but it's, it's still taking a long time. Is it a general unwillingness? You know, that, do they want to, to coin a phrase, die another day? Or, or, or... <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> 
<laughs> couldn't resist it. Sorry. <laughs> but I mean, and, and this committee, perhaps a subject we need to come on to in a, in a future episode. But I mean, it's a committee that is incredibly important given the nature of its work. And it has, you know, produced just before Christmas some incredibly important reports raising serious questions about the government's approach to security matters, about the way in which, you know, they're accountable to Parliament, the way in which they're dealing with security around things like use of technology like WhatsApp and and so on. Obviously, a challenging time internationally, incredibly important, but there is this, this gap. I think Labour's only got two seats on that committee at the moment. So it's not fully functioning in terms of its membership. And that's not the only example of a sort of international committee, a committee with that kind of security dimension being in a bit of difficulty. The Defence Select Committee has had quite a lot of churn as well. I mean, new listeners start here. Back in October, Tobias Elwood, the former Defence Minister who used to chair it, got into trouble with his committee members for making some comments about how Afghanistan's security situation had improved, which seemed to praise the Taliban and got him into all kinds of difficulty. He then resigned. He was replaced by another Conservative, a former Minister Robert Courts. Robert Courts was there for about three femtoseconds before in a, a government <laughs> reshuffle pulled him back in as Solicitor General and so they're having to have another by-election to find another chair for the Defence Select Committee and uh, so that the merry-go-round continues there and it's very difficult for that committee to keep on doing serious work. I mean there, there are some interesting candidates running as so far as we know at the moment there are two Conservative backbencher Raymond Shishti who was very briefly a minister mm. in the dog days of Boris Johnson's regime but is perhaps best known for having contemplated running for the Conservative leadership. How seriously we're not quite sure but he, he was sort of putting himself up there. I don't think it was very <laughs> He thought it was serious. I'm not sure anybody else did. I was trying to be polite about (laughs) it, but but, um, he's put himself up for this. And then there's Jeremy Quinn. Jeremy Quinn came in in 2015, has had a career as a a whip because he'd been chair of the Conservative Association in Buckingham, which was once John Burko's constituency. He was kind of the designated Burko whisperer from the Conservative whips for a while, trying to maintain some kind of channel of communication with the Speaker. Did John Burko ever listen to him? (laughs) Very interesting question to which I, I do not know the answer. But then he had a sort of upward ministerial trajectory uh, culminating in in being paymaster general with a seat in the cabinet. But in between time, and this is where it's relevant to the Defence Select Committee, he was Minister for Defence Procurement, one of those very important Mm. policy-heavy, medium-sized ministerial jobs. So he was in charge of all those weapon systems that the the country spends billions of pounds on. And one of the jobs of the Defence Select Committee is to look at those sagas where they've commissioned a weapon system and it's years overdue and it's billions over budget and it's still doesn't actually work. Those are the sort of things that that committee investigates and Jeremy Quinn would be in the chair potentially marking his own homework as Minister for Defence Procurement. Uh, which brings to mind the example of another Jeremy, Jeremy Hunt, who was the longest ever serving Health Secretary and then went on to chair the Health Select Committee. So there is at least a precedent. Yeah, I mean it's interesting isn't it when you get this. I mean I remember Margaret Hodge saying that the thing about former ministers coming into sort of committee areas that they know from the departmental experience is that they know where the bodies are. They know they <laughs> know where to look but there is that sort of discomfort that they are marking some of their own homework yeah well we'll have to see i'm not quite sure when this election is actually going to take place and whether indeed any other conservative mps because this is a committee that has to be chaired by a conservative mp uh, if any other conservative mps will appear and declare their candidacy and send their hat flying into the ring yeah i think something like 17th or something like that so not much time for that at the moment i think my money would be slightly on jeremy quinn who's quite a well-liked figure on the conservative benches but who will tell? And one other minor
minor nuance on this is is the little remarked Horsham connection. Oh no! In in, in this story, a local angle. <laughs> because Jeremy Quinn's the MP for Horsham, uh, Market Town in Sussex, and Raymond Chishty was wait for it in two thousand and five the Labour candidate for Horsham in that oh, constituency, okay. and the the story is that he was more or less converted to the Conservative cause on the platform at the declaration in the two thousand and five election by the previous MP for Horsham, Francis Maud. Um, uh, how true that is, I really don't know. But <laughs> how on earth did that happen? But the, but the burgers of Horsham will be watching with, I suspect, great interest to see what unfolds from this. <laughs> so at this point, Mark, I think we should take a break because James Arbuthnot is going to join us to discuss the Horizon Post Office scandal. So stay with us. If you're enjoying the pod and think like Mark and I do that Parliament matters, why not join the Hansard Society? This year, we celebrate our 80th anniversary. And throughout the year, we'll have a number of special events to mark this important milestone. For as little as a cup of coffee each month, you can join us and follow in the footsteps of our first members, Winston Churchill and Clement Attlee. And if you're enjoying the issues that we're talking about on the pod, you'll also be getting our special members-only Dispatch Box newsletter each week, where we bring together the best news and stories about parliaments here in the UK and around the world. You can join by going to hansardsociety.org.uk slash membership. The big news this week in Parliament, as elsewhere, has been the fallout from ITV's drama Mr Bates versus the Post Office, the story of the Post Office Horizon scandal and how hundreds of people were wrongfully prosecuted, many went to jail, some ended their own lives. It's been an absolutely horrific example of a miscarriage of justice, the biggest in British history. And one of those instrumental in bringing it to Parliament's attention is James Arbuthnot, now Lord Arbuthnot, former Conservative MP, who's with us now. James, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. First of all, what first brought this to your attention? Because I can imagine MPs get a lot of very aggrieved people turning up at their constituency surgery and telling tales of bad things that have happened to them. What made this issue stand out and persuade you to take it up as effectively as you did? Um, The postmaster from Odium, a man called David Bristow, said that he'd had a problem, that he'd been accused of losing something like £40,000 from the Odium post office, and he thought it was a problem with the new accounting system that they'd been made to bring in. He said that Joe Hamilton, a sub-postmaster from the neighbouring village of South Warnborough, had a similar problem, and she'd actually had to go to court, and she'd been convicted of false accounting, and would I go and see them? So I did. And they both were transparently honest people, warm and friendly. And yet here was Joe Hamilton, a convicted criminal, and David Bristow having been accused of losing over £40,000. And the problem was at that stage that I couldn't see where we could take Joe Hamilton's case because she'd pleaded guilty and so she couldn't appeal. It wasn't until about 18 months later when David Bristow's replacement as the sub-postmaster in Odium was also removed for the same sort of reason. I thought, this is absurd. It can't be a coincidence. There must be something systemically wrong with the post office accounting system. So I wrote to the minister and I said, where are we? This can't be right. I had written to the minister back in 2009 when... Joe Hamilton and David Bristow first approached me, and I was told, actually, this is a contractual separate matter for the post office. We've got a hands-off arrangement with the post office, and so it's nothing to do with the government. That was the problem. 
So you got nothing to do with us, Gov, from a succession of ministers? Yes, starting with Labour ministers, going on to Lib Dem ministers and going on to Conservative ministers, nothing to do with us. That is a model which I think is profoundly dangerous. If you have a dangerous dog, you can't declare an arm's length arrangement with your dangerous dog if it bites someone. You can't say nothing to do with me. You've got to take the responsibility of ownership. And the government had been refusing to do that for years. And that is one of the fundamental problems with what has happened. One of the things that strikes you when you look at this is quite how many ministers we're talking about here. 17 ministers have been individually responsible within the business department for the post office over the length of this scandal, if you trace it back to uh, before 2010, indeed into the 90s. So that's quite a lot of people changing chairs very, very rapidly. And I can imagine, you know, you, you become a minister, you suddenly get this land on your desk, you've got to go into the Commons and answer for it, and you don't really have all that much option, do you, but to read what's in the brief the civil servants give you? Particularly if the civil servants have told you not to get involved because this is a hands-off arrangement, an arm's-length arrangement, and they've got all of this under control. Yes, ministers are all too easy come, easy go, and they have so many things on their plate that they actually can't oversee everything with the care that is needed. But constitutionally, aren't ministers the responsible people for this? Yeah, the, the civil servants answers the ministers, the ministers responsible for what comes up in their department. Oh, yes, they are. They are constitutionally responsible. They own this damn thing. And so they really need to take responsibility for it. And so I hope that this horrific saga will result in a reappraisal of the notion of arm's length arrangements. And how would you want that reformed? What changes would you would you think necessary I would, to bring in? I would want simply ministers to feel able to answer to Parliament for problems that occur in the organisations that their departments own. That's a relatively simple matter. They should never say, this is entirely for that organisation. They should take responsibility directly themselves. One of the things seems to be that you've said that you think that the Post Office lied to Parliament. Yes, I have. What recourse do you think there is for Parliament in that situation? I mean, that is a serious thing, lying to Parliament. What can be done? What happened with that was that it was clear that people within the Post Office, and I don't know exactly who within the Post Office, but people within the Post Office did know that a Fujitsu employee had given evidence to the courts which rendered his evidence and rendered the convictions that arose out of his evidence unsafe. People in the post office knew that in 2013. And yet the post office, Paula Van Ols, Angela van den Bergerd, went in front of a select committee in February 2015 and said that they had no evidence to suggest that the convictions were unsafe. That was untrue. And so the moment that the advice came into the public domain in 2020, or I think it may have been, the moment that advice came into the public domain, I wrote to the Speaker and to the Lord Speaker and to the Chairman of the Business Select Committee to say, you have been lied to back in 2015. This is really serious stuff. By that stage, 
the public inquiry was underway and the select committee felt unable to interfere in the work that was already being done by the public inquiry and the speakers of each house felt unable to interfere in something where the chairman of the committee that had been lied to felt unable to interfere and so it all began to add up to can't do anything at at this stage. This is the the parliamentary sort of position that once things are before the courts, they're subjudice and Parliament doesn't take action or interfere in any way that it would be seen to influence what the courts are doing. So again, sort of, you you find that proceedings are stymied. That's rather been blown out of the water this week, hasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So talk us through the anatomy of, of the campaign that took place, because you and... MPs in a similar position who'd had their own constituents coming to them with these problems. You all put your heads together and began to cooperate and try and put pressure on ministers who didn't really want to hear what you were saying to them. Yes, that's right. I wrote to every MP to say, have you got the same sort of problem? And between 30 and 50 wrote back to me to say, yes, we have. So I got the those MPs who were able to come to the meeting along with several sub-postmasters who were able to come to a meeting along with solicitors who who were collecting and collating cases to a meeting. And we all began to approach first the post office because, after all, the government was saying, not me, Gov. And we approached the post office and we had a positive, sympathetic, helpful response from the chairman, Alice Perkins, and Paula Vanels, the chief, the new chief executive, and the post office themselves suggested, Paula Vanels suggested, the appointment of a forensic accountancy firm to look into the problems that we'd identified to see whether there was anything wrong. They believed, I'm sure, I'm sure Paula Vanels and Alice Perkins believed, that the forensic accountants would establish that the Horizon system was robust. Quite when, in the previous history of the post office, they had forgotten that the Horizon system came in with many, many doubts, having been rejected by the Department of Work and Pensions, and with everybody in the post office at that stage, and in Fujitsu, knowing that this was a system with serious flaws. Quite when that had been forgotten in the post office history, I don't know. But I'm sure they did want to get to the bottom of it. And then when they found the answers that Second Sight, the forensic accountants, were producing, those answers weren't to their liking. Then they began to restrict access for Second Sight to the documents, to the information. They were beginning to clamp down on this inconvenient investigation. And they produced a mediation scheme, which they then set out to sabotage. I suppose that they thought we wouldn't notice or something. And at that stage, the MPs broke off negotiations, and I said that the post office had been duplicitous, which I think it had. And I suggested to Alan Bates, a man I revere, and others, that it might be a good idea to go in front of the select committee. And I suggested to the select committee they might like to look at it, and they did. And so that, that's the, if you, if you like, the turning point moment when things began to move? No, the turning point moment, actually, that was the moment at which politics failed, comprehensively failed. The turning point moment was when the publicity that had arisen out of that political drive, I think, helped Alan Bates to go to litigation funders 
to take the post office to court. And I think it will have helped Alan Bates to collect together 555 sub-postmasters, an astonishing achievement to form his group Legal Action. And then Mr Justice Fraser's absolutely stonkingly wonderful judgment made it plain that the post office was essentially lying through its teeth and trying to bolster its own brand at the expense of fairness and justice for the sub-postmasters, which it had, it had thrown to the wall. So when was there a moment in Parliament where the climate changed? The moment in Parliament where the climate changed was the outcome of Mr Justice Fraser's judgment, except that there had been a lot of rumbling publicity about this. And during one Prime Minister's questions, Kate Osborne asked a question on behalf of her sub-postmaster constituent of Boris Johnson. And Boris Johnson said, yes, she's asked for a public inquiry, and she can have exactly the inquiry that she has asked for. I'm sure he had not the slightest idea <laughs> of quite what it was that he was letting the government in for. But it was that, because I think the civil service and the post office reacted with horror to the idea that they were going to have to face a public inquiry. And they tried their utmost to limit it to a review. The review under Sir Wynne Williams, who is doing an extraordinarily good job, the review had its terms of reference totally restricted. It couldn't look at compensation or anything like that, or anything unpleasant. But then, as a result of Mr Justice Fraser's stonkingly wonderful judgment, 39 sub-postmasters had their convictions overturned by the Court of Appeal. The largest number of convictions ever overturned on one issue in British history, and it were now up to 95. It was that overturning of the convictions that made Paul Scully, the new minister for the post office, made him change the review into a full-blown public inquiry since when it has taken off. But at the same time, Nick Wallace was writing his book, The Great Post Office Scandal, which is the most readable insightful book that you could hope to read on a very complicated and difficult subject. But it is, like Mr Bates and the post office, it is an infuriating and illuminating and gripping read. And so gradually it gave rise to Mr Bates and the post office. And now we have a, the, the vast sort of spasm of parliamentary activity that we've seen this week off the back of that TV series is it a bit infuriating to you that so much had been going on before, but it takes a TV... I mean, I've seen someone rather sarcastically suggest that you shouldn't bother going to your MP anymore. You should approach ITV's commissioning editor for drama if you want to air an injustice these days. I think, actually, the parliamentary activity before the legal activity, I think it all came together and helped. I think it informed the, the legal activity. And I think the particularly the select committee work helped the legal activity. And there was one other thing as well, because the public inquiry had excluded from its terms of reference the issue of compensation. I went to the new chairman of the business committee, Darren Jones, and said, look, this is outside the terms of reference of the public inquiry, so you can do an inquiry into it. And he did. 
and it was his evidence session with Paul Scully in front of it that made Paul Scully agree that full compensation should be given even though the court cases had been settled. We've already talked about the enormous succession of ministers who've been theoretically at least responsible for this issue. But there's, I, since there's a, a bit of a hue and cry about the culpability of those ministers and Ed Davey, the leader of the Lib Dems in particular, how culpable do you think individual ministers have been in this? Should they have said, hang on a minute, I've got serious people like James Arbuthnot and Kevin Jones, these aren't sort of caped crusaders, these are experienced MPs and ex-ministers coming to me and saying there's a problem. Should they have taken more notice earlier? Yes, they should. I wouldn't single out any particular minister for having failed to do that. I think they all failed to do that, frankly. I got the same response from Ed Davey as I had got from Pat McFadden and as I got from Kelly Tolhurst. I did go and see Baroness Neville Rolfe when she was the minister in charge of the post office. I think that was in 2015. And I've spoken to her about this and she said she did tell the post office, you've got to sort this out, which was the result I was hoping for. And I think that what the post office then did was to go away and do an investigation which wasn't shared with either the minister or the post office board, which I find unbelievable, or would find it unbelievable, were not the post office involved. It's an extraordinary series of stories, this. The government's now said that it's going to bring forward legislation to exonerate all the postmasters and postmistresses who've had convictions. There is a concern that Parliament here taking a role that belongs to the courts and that this might be setting an an unfortunate precedent. What's your view? Are there risks for Parliament? My view is that I fully understand the concern and for the legislature to overturn cases and decisions that have been before the courts is a difficult thing to do if we have the proper separation of powers. However... The largest number of cases on any one issue that had previously been before the Criminal Cases Review Commission was, as I understand it, 10. We are talking in the post office case of something like 900 or more. And the palaver of bringing people in front of the Criminal Cases Review Commission, they recommending to the Court of Appeal that those cases should be considered, hearing all the evidence, each of those cases individually, that palaver, the system is simply not set up to be able to cope with that. And it never could be. However much resource we put into it, we would not be able to solve that problem. And more, more to the point, sub-postmasters are simply not applying to have their convictions overturned. They're not coming forward. They are so traumatised by their experience of going to authority and of their experience with the post office that they are putting it behind them. They want nothing more to do with it. It will be difficult as a result of this legislation to find many of the sub-postmasters who've been so devastated in order to give them the redress that they need and that they should have because they've been so traumatised. So I think... It is an uncomfortable thing to be doing, but I also think that it is the only solution available to us. As the minister put it when he was announcing this, it's the lesser of two evils. And if I may, a slightly personal question. So by background, by education, you spent three decades or more in Parliament, you've been a minister, you're a sort of 
almost a quintessential establishment figure, one might say. Oh, I thought you were going to say I was very old. (laughs) (laughs) Quintessential establishment figure, if I put it that way. And yet, this isn't your first go at challenging injustice. I mean, you had an earlier case in your constituency involving the Chinook helicopter crash in in, in Mullikintyre, where you you were challenging the MOD about the findings of responsibility for that crash. So this is your sort of second campaign for your constituents against an injustice. Has it changed how you feel about the institutions of the state and about politics and parliament and government? No. Um, I think that members of parliament have got a duty to do things on behalf of their constituents, and I think that the requirements of fairness are overriding. And even though I'm now 71, in essence I'm a small boy who cannot stand unfairness. And I can't. And I won't stop with this until I've done my best to see it right. And why does it take the state so long to hear these complaints? Why is it that, whether you're talking about Windrush, whether you're talking about contaminated blood, whatever, it takes so long for people who come to the state and say there's been a great injustice, for the state to cock an ear and actually listen and do something about it? It, it's, It's awful, but it may be part of the human condition. It may be that we, whether we're in authority or not, we believe what we want to believe. And if all our experience is that you protect the organisation for which you work and you make sure that it sees off all comers, as it were, then, I don't know, it's hard to defend the post office, and I don't. It's pretty hard to defend the government, and I don't often do that. Um, But it is part of the human condition that we believe what we want to believe. And we, if there is groupthink around, we will probably join it. And that is what has happened in this case. And is this going to be weaponised in the next general election now? Almost certainly. That's the way things are. James Arbuthnot, thanks for joining us on the pod. <laughs> so, Mark, um, looking ahead to the next week, there's, there's actually, following that discussion with James Arbuthnot, there's a couple of things that are relevant to the post office horizon scandal that are going to be happening in Parliament. The House of Lords is going to be considering the Post Office Horizon System Compensation Bill, which was the legislation that was promised in the King's speech and brought forward. We'll obviously wait to hear more detail about the government's plans for its legislation to exonerate the postmasters and postmistresses and what their plans are in terms of the timetable for that when we'll see the bill. Uh, They're Um, taking it all in a single gulp, though, on Tuesday at the moment, aren't they? All stages from second reading right through. the, The compensation bill, yeah, but we don't know what the plans are yet in terms of when this bill for the exoneration is mm. of, of the postmistresses and, and postmasters is going to come you know how long is it going to take to draft the legislation they're obviously consulting still with the judiciary so we might get more news on that in the coming days one thing to bear in mind it's not it's not having much discussion is um if you think back we discussed this on an earlier episode of the podcast that before christmas rishi sunak suffered his first defeat on legislation on the victims and prisoners bill when the labor mp chair of the home affairs select committee diana johnson pushed an amendment through and got the support of sufficient number of Conservative MPs to join the opposition benches 
in support of an amendment for a compensation scheme for the victims of the contaminated blood scandal. What's interesting about this, and this is before the, the whole post office you know, ITV drama brought the, the, um, the Horizon scandal to, to this level of public attention, Diana Johnson and, and her supporters were insisting on putting that amendment into the legislation to get a compensation scheme for the contaminated blood victims because they could see that the post office had already got a compensation scheme up and running. And they're concerned that the government had been dragging out the time taken to set up a compensation scheme for the victims of the contaminated blood scandal. So they were not prepared to wear government assurances that this was going to happen down the road. They insisted on putting it into the the legislation and that following royal assent, as a result of this amendment, if if, if indeed the bill gets, gets through, gets royal assent... Um, within three months, the government will have to set up a statutory compensation scheme for the contaminated blood victims. So it's interesting that before this drama, MPs were looking at how things were, were going with that post office scandal and learning lessons for the contaminated blood victims to get support up and running. So I think there may be a more general fallout from, from this, which will spread over if you like, other injustices, other campaigns will be looking very closely at the lessons learned and the battles fought by the victims of Post Office Horizon. Yeah. And then um, the other big issue that's, uh, of course, going to be dominating the Commons in the week ahead is is the return of the Rwanda Bill for its committee stage in the chamber for a couple of days. Yeah, two days of committee of the whole House. So they're not sending it off to some committee upstairs. Every MP is going to get a chance to weigh in on the detail of this. And and lots of them already are. Names like Robert Jenrick, the former Home Office Minister, uh, Sir Ian Duncan-Smith, the former Conservative leader. People like that are, are putting down plenty of amendments. And I dare say more will Yes. The big question is, you know, have they got enough support on the Conservative benches? It seems doubtful, I have to say, at the moment. This is is the really difficult bit about this. I mean, part of this is the government calculating the impact on party unity of having the right of the party really hacked off that a bill that they think is essential isn't tough enough to do what they want it to do. At the same time, there's another faction, the sort of more one nation wing, who are very worried about the implications for international law commitments for, by this country, the various conventions that we've signed up to on the treatment of refugees and migrants. Might they rebel? Might you win one set of rebels only to, only to infuriate another? So there's a very difficult party management issue here for Rishi Sunak. But in, in another way, it's kind of asymmetrical. Because while you can imagine the one nation crowd finding causes to align with Labour to potentially building up a non-government majority in the House, you can't really see Labour being prepared to back some of the amendments from the Tory right. So those rebels basically have to fight an internal party battle, whereas the One Nation crowd could if they wanted to, and it's a very open question whether they would, but could potentially line up with Labour and rewrite the legislation, as it were, by force on the floor of the House. Yeah, and, and Rishi Sunak's sort of on the horns of a Goldilocks dilemma. You know, he neither wants to be too soft nor too hard in either direction. And how does he balance that? I mean, it may well be that the bill he's got is the sweet spot. And actually, he's not going to make any concessions. They, they've made clear that this is as good as it gets. You know, Rwanda has said that any concessions in respect of international law would mean it couldn't continue with its agreement with the government. As you say, it's very hard to see how the Conservative right are going to uh, find any support on the opposition benches. Um, Except on one point, because, of course, at the end of it, all, all this process, there's the third reading vote. Mm. So if the bill 
in its final form is unacceptable to the Conservative right. They could then vote with Labour to throw it out. But that, that, that's, that's beyond the nuclear option. That's the kind of thermonuclear mega Armageddon option for a Conservative MP to vote against a Conservative government's legislation, especially something of this magnitude, of this political salience, would be a huge huge step to take and and somehow I think they probably won't quite be able to do that certainly not in sufficient numbers Yeah and it's it's hard to see how if you're the Prime Minister you wouldn't strip them of the whip If they're stripped of the whip then they're not standing in the next election Now some of them may not care about that because they may be standing down but there will be some who do care about that There will be some who do care about that and and there are several considerations in this I mean if, if you get Conservative MPs voting down a piece of legislation of this magnitude it would be noticed outside the precincts of Westminster. This this would be another sort of Tory chaos story that would dominate yeah, the headlines. They're an ungovernable coalition. Uh, and, th- and that doesn't exactly help them in a general election either. So there's that side of it. And as you say, there's the, there's the prospect that people might lose the whip. Labour would certainly relish, I think, being able to sort of score a coup of that dimension against Rishi Sunak because it would undermine the sort of competence car that he's busy mm. trying to play. Yeah. And of course, at second reading, we had all of this, you yeah. know, this, this taking us up to the top of the hill that they'd got the numbers, you know, the, the, the five families of the Conservative right um, appearing before the I, TV I, I cameras. Love, I love the way they've, they, they've gleefully adopted mafia titles and mafia languages in, well, in their self-description. Here. Yeah, well, yeah. I gather some of them are falling out, because, you know, like families do, because some of them want to sort of put a bit of a distance between themselves. So um, they may not be quite as united as they were mm. at second reading. But at the end of the day, they haven't got the votes. Yeah. And that no. was perfectly clear. It was clear months ago on the, uh, was it the Windsor Framework deal? They haven't got the votes then either. So I think the reality is there'll, there'll be an awful lot of, of uh, huffing talk, and puffing. Huffing and puffing, a lot of talk. But they won't blow of, the house down. Yeah, a lot of stuff in the media and social media. And uh, at the end of the day, it'll go through, probably with little or no amendment, and it'll end up in the Lords, and that'll be the next battle. I think one of the key lessons that uh, the big organisers on the Conservative right learn, people like Steve Baker before he was a minister learned, was that you had to get all of the right to kind of jump together if they were going to rebel. They had to maximise their numbers or not do it at all. And I think we're in not-to-do-it-at-all territory here. Yeah. Wait and see. See what happens. Turn on, tune in, drop out. Well, that's all from us for this week's episode of Parliament Matters. Please hit the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app to get the next episode as soon as it lands. And help us to make the podcast better by leaving a rating or review on Apple or Spotify and sharing your feedback. Our producer tells us it's important for the algorithm to give the show a boost. And Mark, tell us more about the algorithm. Well, what do I know about algorithms? You know, I write my scripts with a quill pen on vellum and then send it in by carrier pigeon. <laughs> Well, before we go, a quick reminder also that you can send us your questions on all things Parliament by visiting hansardsociety.org.uk slash PMUQ. We'll be discussing them in future episodes, including our special Urgent Questions editions dedicated to what you want to know about Parliament. And you can find us across social media at Hansard Society to get more content related to the show and the wider work of the Hansard Society. Parliament Matters is produced by the Hansard Society and supported by the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust. For more information, visit hansardsociety.org.uk slash PM or find us on social media at Hansard Society. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O S E A Malibu.com, code GLOW.